there's a, um, there's what's been described as the largest church in the United States. Not going to speak of names, not going to speak of locations, but it's been described as the largest church in the United States. And the pastor of this largest church in the United States um, has been noted to say uh, that it is God's intention uh, that we should uh, have uh, a blessed and indeed prosperous in the even the worldly sense of that prosperous life if we follow Jesus closely enough. Here's, here's the words exactly that he used, and I want you to consider this in light of what we're going to see in this text and what the Bible teaches throughout. Uh, this man writes, Consequently, and I would say this humbly, I have come to expect to be treated by others and by this world differently. So far, so good. I do like when I read somebody not to immediately discredit what they're saying. I like to even, Carol doesn't particularly like this game I play, but I'll watch folks on TV for a period of time until I can hang with them no longer. Uh, and I try to listen with a gracious ear. Uh, too often we assume that somebody is going to say something wrong um, or say something we agree with, but we need to listen to it uh, graciously and accurately. So he says, I've come to expect to be treated differently by both the world and by others. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. Okay, beginning to have some issues. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. I can expect people to go out of their way to want to help me. I expect good things and I expect them now. This is a a very poor interpretation of the 8th Psalm. Uh, The 8th Psalm, actually King David, as he writes that, he says, as I consider the whole universe, I say, oh, what am I that you're mindful of me, O God? And it says, yet you have crowned me with glory and honor. And he takes that phrase, this person, and we'll deal with his sayings no longer, but uh, he says, if I've been crowned with glory and honor, then the world ought to recognize that. I ought to be treated as royalty. We're going to look at the text before us. We're going to look at other passages of Scripture, and we find that this is just not the case. This is not what we've been promised. This is not what we see in reality. Uh, this is not God's plan. If we find an occasion where the disciples have just witnessed Jesus feeding the thousands, breaking bread, that public miracle that was actually kind of privately done as he broke the bread and it was distributed among the thousands. The few loaves and the fish multiplied by the Lord of creation. And that's where we pick up in the text. This has just happened. Many at that occasion tried to take Jesus by force to make him king after the pattern that they wanted to. Uh, But we see what Jesus does instead. We find and we pick up reading in verse 45. Follow along with me as I read aloud. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples to get into the boat and to go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I, 
do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Lord, thank you for this, your word. May we not only recognize it for the truth that it is, but Father, rejoice in how it leads us, instructs us, molds us, and changes us. Make us more like Jesus by our time in your word today. For we pray in his name. Amen. (laughs) I find it so easy to, to look at the disciples and say, how thick are you guys? Right? How thick are you guys? All right, they're in the boat. The sea is rough. Have we ever encountered this with them before? Yes. It was, on, it was, it was just a, a, few, a few verses back. We saw them in the sea, and, and they shook Jesus awake in the back of the boat, and they said, don't you care if we die? That's that question that we ask so often in the midst of turmoil. It says, don't you care, Jesus? We're going to look at that in the text here today. But we find the same things recurring. As we read that uh, passage out of Nehemiah chapter 9, what was it that Nehemiah kept saying? He kept saying, these people, my fathers and me, we're thick-headed. We, we have a hard time getting it. We have to be reminded again and again and again. And we, we confess our sins and we repent of it and we turn from these things. We doubt, we worry, we're anxious, we struggle. We ask, Lord, don't you care? And you show us that you do. And then tomorrow we turn around and we ask the question again. Now, I might just be preaching to myself. So if I'm not preaching to you, you just bow your head, you pray that I'll finally get it. But I don't think I'm alone in this room that we need to be reminded of things again and again and again, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves again and again and again, reading it from God's word, embracing it and hearing it fresh and anew every day. To revisit, to know God's mercies are new every day, but his truth is eternal and lasting. And and the disciples here, they get into the boat, and he actually, the the Greek is quite strong there. It says he made them get into the boat. Uh, It's it's a pretty astonishing thing that, that Jesus at that point, says, no, 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 no. You get in there saying, Jesus, we want to stay. He says, no, you get in the boat and go. And they may have been concerned for his safety with the crowds there. He's, he's sending his, his inner circle away and he's staying behind. But he makes them to get into the boat. It's important. It's going to play into our examination of this text very, very significantly that it was Jesus that put them in the boat. And then what does he do? Mark is so very clear to explain that Jesus, he dismissed the crowd you know, he didn't just walk away from them. He brought it to a conclusion. It brought it to a point where, where they said amen together. And after he had taken leave of them, them being the disciples, them being the crowd, it says that Jesus went up on the mountain. And it should come as no surprise. There he prayed. We're reminded again and again and again that our Savior guarded carefully He pursued diligently that time alone with his heavenly father in prayer. Now, I have to to think that Jesus did have a great advantage over us in this. but, But we also have his word that gives us such great assurance to this point. And here's what I mean is that Jesus has known from all eternity. The son of God has known from all eternity how sweet is fellowship with God. 
The eternal Son of God has known that perfect fellowship of the Trinity and He rejoiced in it. He says, I want to do this always, regularly, deliberately, at length. I want this time of soul communication, of heart fellowship with the one I've known for eternity. And I say, He's known that for real. And, and, and what He gives us is a promise of, oh, oh, in this foretaste. As you labor in prayer, know this. Throughout this life, you will grow to cherish that time, that sweet hour of prayer more and more. But one day, you'll see it fully. He says, taste and see that it's good. So we see our Savior going up on the mountain, and he he spends that time in prayer. And it says that the evening, it then came. And he looked out, and what did he see upon the, the sea? He saw the disciples struggling. The disciples were struggling once again. They, they struggled and they struggled again. The Sea of Galilee was uh, some 600 feet below sea level. Uh, and actually, the, the surrounding hills right around there uh, could be as much as 2,000 feet above them. It was this really interesting little funnel there. And especially right there with Mount Hermon, there would come a, a northeastern uh, wind that would come at night and, and the, the, the air temperature would cool greatly, and the cold air would come rushing down from the mountain across the sea. It'd be a squall, or what they call there a Syrah. This, this great wind that would, it was not just a breeze. It was not just a, a, an irritation in their face. It was something that as they were paddling, as they were seeking to go against the wind, it was pushing them back. They were not making headway. That which should have only taken them a couple of hours, they have now been laboring for probably some nine, eight or nine hours and had not even made it halfway across. It was greatly feared. This Syrah, this, this great squall, was feared even among the experienced fishermen there on the Sea of Galilee. And that's what they were accounting, encountering here in the middle of the night. It says in the text, it was the fourth watch of the night. We would view that to be between you know, four and six o'clock in the morning. Always darkest before the dawn, we would say. It's that, that, that period where it had been dark all night. They've been struggling. They're frustrated. They're tired. They've been beaten by the wind, and they are greatly discouraged. Even these fishermen who have spent their lives on the water, they're give out. Now, this is, this is coming right on the heels of, of seeing Jesus feeding the 5,000. 5,000 men plus their families, their children, their wives, their parents, all of this, 5,000 people. We see trouble coming on the heels of great blessing. Now think about this. Think about it in your own life. How often uh, we find right on the heels of, 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 a, of a great occasion, right on the heels of something special in our lives, that after that mountaintop encounter, as we come down the other side, that we're met with trouble, we're met with struggle, after a prayer meeting, after a worship service. And, and when problems happen, when difficulties come, when, when we're doing what we're told and, and bad things happen, what question comes to our minds? When, when we're struggling, when we're, when we're in a storm of some description, what question pops into our minds? Well, there's a couple that might happen, but very regularly we say, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong to put myself in this bad circumstance? That would be the right notion based on the teaching that I earlier referenced, which is no good teaching at all, that, that we, if we're walking faithfully, we should have very sweet, gentle lives. We ask, what did I do wrong? Or what did I do to deserve this trial? We ask and we struggle with these questions. And Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned 
Romans 3 teaches that all have fallen short to the glory of the glory of God. And we tend to think about storms. Uh, we tend to think about the things that, that, that threaten to uh, destroy the boat. And, and we, we hearken back to even Jonah. Remember Jonah? Uh, he found a storm at sea. The storm was threatening to capsize the boat and send it to the bottom of the sea. And why did that happen? Because Jonah was being disobedient. Jonah had been told to go to Nineveh and he was running to Tarshish. And it was by throwing the sinner into the sea that the calm happened that the boat was spared. And we tend to think that must be the case in every situation. That it's a particular sin. That it is a singular occurrence of disobedience that has brought about our problems. And this is not true. This is not true. All trials are not the consequence of particular sins. In this case, look carefully. The disciples find themselves in trouble after doing what Jesus told them. Jesus made them to get into the boat. And he placed them on the sea where they would struggle, where they would be hard-pressed by the squall coming down from the cool mountains, frustrated, tired, exhausted at the end of themselves and even terrified in the midst of their exhaustion as they see this figure. He made them to get into the boat. Remember this. The lesson is clear. If we follow Jesus, there will be those occasions when we will know trouble. We will know struggle. This is contrary to the teaching that I opened with at the beginning and we need to remember this because Jesus teaches something contrary to that. What Jesus teaches is in this world, John 16... 33 says we will have trouble. We will have tribulation. In this world, we will have those moments when we will reach the end of all that we can do. Praise be that God brings us to those points. Because it's at those points when we realize that yes, there is a limit to what we can do. But there is one who is not so limited. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Acts chapter 14 says... Uh, that we must not be, uh, excuse me, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And 1 John 3 says, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Problems, troubles, difficulties, a wind pressing hard against us. Even this past Thursday night, uh, Pastor Kirby Smith, as he spoke to our abiders, uh, quoted from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, where, where Peter says, Beloved, oh, and remember, when Peter or Paul says, Beloved, or brothers, when, when they begin that way, you know something difficult is coming. Because what he's doing is he's putting his hand on your shoulder and saying, You know, I love you, but we're going to deal with something tough. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised, or in some translations, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Don't be surprised as you're walking with the Lord when you face that drastic and insurmountable headwind. Jesus says, in this world, you'll have troubles. But what does he say right before that? Do not fear. What does he say? Do not be dismayed. He says, why? Because I have overcome this world. The world does not have the final say. As the wind did not have the final say in the occasion in the boat, as the, even the sin of Jonah did not have final say over whether he witnessed in Nineveh and Nineveh was brought to repentance or not, in our lives, the world will not have the final say. 
Jesus says, I have overcome this world. We see the disciples struggling, but Jesus sees that. Jesus sees that. He knows that. He is aware of these things. I, I, I'm tickled, not tickled, actually quite dismayed, and I, but it's with this, this idea of, of, um, of, of misunderstanding and how it's, almost, it's such a foolish statement that, and people embrace it so much. When, when you ask about people's prayer lives and have you prayed about a particular matter, a small thing, maybe it's a test for a student. Of course, a test for a student is at that moment the greatest of headwinds that they could ever encounter, right? And a test for a student, and, and people say, well, have you prayed? about that. Well, I know God has got much more important things to worry about. And and like I said, that's such a foolish statement because what that is basically saying is that God cannot take care of everything and we must be the screener to give Him only the important prayers, the important calls, and let all the others go into the answering machine, go into the email to be dealt with whenever God has time. But we need to understand the omnipresence of God that is, that He is everywhere. The omniscience of God, that He knows everything. and The omnipotence of God, that He is all-powerful. That He can answer the smallest and the greatest of our prayers. And that He can attend to the, the most minute and the most consequential of our needs. We need to, to know that, that, that Jesus knows. He knows our trouble. Where, where is Jesus as this is going on? He's on the mountain, we see. He's praying. He's in fellowship with his heavenly father. He was not with them, but from the mountain he saw them. Now think about this too. As they were struggling on the sea, how well do you think they could pick Jesus out on the mountain? As they were laboring against the wind, probably having lanterns on the boat protected from the wind so that they could see what was going on there. They didn't have the halogen beams and all that sort of thing. They would have had just some, some, some small protected lanterns or lamps on, on the boat to, to be able to see what was going on if, if, if they were even able to keep those lit. But Jesus, from his vantage point, was able to look upon the sea and to know where they were. There's no necessary implication that he had some sort of supernatural vision to see them. There they were. They had not made much progress. They were there on the sea. And it doesn't take a seminary degree to, to, to see the, uh, the clear teaching of what this is, that as Jesus sees our trouble, as Jesus knows our trouble, we don't always see him watching us. We don't, we don't always know as we look there before our eyes to, to see him. For our eyes are distracted by the waves, by the wind, by the trouble. But Jesus sees and he knows. Now, can you imagine for any length of time, Jesus, as he prayed on that mountain, as he spent that time with his heavenly father in prayer, can you imagine for a second that he was not praying for those men upon the sea? That he was not making effectual prayers before the throne of God? That he was not effectively pleading for them, saying, Lord, take care of them. Father, watch after them. Don't have any indication that he prayed that the storm would abate. Any indication that the the storm would go away, but he certainly would have prayed that they would not perish. That they would be wet, that they would be frustrated, even terrified that they would not be finished. The Lord certainly would pray for them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let me encourage you to flip over there with me. Here are the rustle pages to know that you're still awake. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. begins in verse 7, speaking about the treasure of the gospel, uh, that, that light of the good news. It says, we, don't, we have this treasure, it's in jars of clay. 
talking about the weakness, the frailty of who we are, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, he goes on to talk about the nature of our lives in this world. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What he's speaking about is the knowledge of God that he knows that he sees and that he is indeed keeping us through the storm. So we'd be broken, we're hurt, yes, but we are not defeated. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to speak about Jesus as being the one who always leads us in triumph. Triumph! Victory! Eternal glory! This is where we are being led. But in this day, we fight and we struggle. Now, what does that mean to our lives? How are we to live in the midst of that as we take this very real description of the disciples struggling as they are doing what they are told to do? How how does that indicate a way that we should live? I love a letter that was written uh, really after the turn of the first century. It was a letter written by a man by the name of Mathetes to Diognetus. Names you don't need to remember. Just like those names that we read in Nehemiah a few minutes ago, difficult names, unless you want to name your uh, soon-to-be child or grandchild Methetus or Diognetus, um, we can just simply understand that this was a, a Christian speaking, uh, a Christian discussion about observations uh, of, of the Christians in, in the region there. Uh, this speaks about the early church. It says, for the Christians, they're distinguished from other men, not by their country, not by their language, not by the customs that they observe. They don't inhabit cities of their own. They don't employ a particular form of speech, nor do they lead a life that is marked out by any singularity. That's simply to say that there's not one uh, distinguishable worldly practice that, that marks them out as some cultures would be marked out. He goes on to write, he says, the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or by deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves as advocates of merely human doctrines. So he's talking about the things that he's observed among Christians. He says, but they inhabit Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, to food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but they do so as sojourners, that is, visitors. As as citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them like their native country, and every land of their birth like a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, and they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but they do not have a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, even though they are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and they are condemned. They are put to death and they are restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack in all things, but they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are spoken evil of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled and they bless others. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet they're punished as evildoers. 
When punished, they rejoice as if they have been brought back to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, and they are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. The summation of this this letter, for, for all of its bit archaic speech, is this. We, we look at these people who live next door to us, who dress like us, who, who eat the same meals as we do, yet their lives are markedly different as they are persecuted. Somehow that makes them to shine. As they are lied about, somehow that gives them incentive to proclaim and to extol, to live exemplary lives. When they're punished, they rejoice as if they've been brought back to life, he says. So how do we do this? How do we rejoice when persecuted as if we've been brought back to life? We need to know that Jesus knows better than us. Jesus knows better than us, and he prays for us. Effectually, the right hand of God. He is our high priest, and he is there with us in the midst of the storm. Hebrews 11.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So we see that even though the disciples and we struggle, our Savior knows. And finally, we see that our Savior, he cares He cares in the midst of this. Now, there's a puzzle in the midst of this text and one I want to resolve because I hope you noticed it as well. Uh, An interesting portion of a verse that as we look at it, we have to ask, why is this there? It's right there in the midst of verse 48. Look at that with me. Verse 48 of our Mark 6 text. It said he saw that they're making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea He meant to pass by them. It's an odd little bit of a text, isn't it? It's an odd odd little fragment. It leads into the fact uh, he meant to pass by them, but always when you see that but, we need to ask, why is that there? Uh, Why why did he insert this uh, to indicate a turning in the text? When they saw him, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, and he got into the boat with them. But what's going on here? Well, this would appear to indicate at first glance, if we read it with 21st century eyes, 21st century attitudes, that Jesus was ignoring them, that he, he was trying to, to walk past them oblivious, didn't want to be bothered, if, if I might be so coarse as to say, that Jesus seems to be, as we read this, walking with his hands behind his back and just walking on the sea. That's an unfair reading of the text. It's a, certainly an unfair reading and not consistent with the way that we see Jesus time and time again in the Word. It says time and time again that as Jesus looked upon the crowds, as Jesus looked on his disciples, as Jesus looked upon the masses, it says his heart went out to them. He cares. Our Savior cares. Our Savior is not walking nonchalantly by and saying, oh, you guys, just get over it. Come on, man up. It ain't so bad. What's the worst that's going to happen? You die, you'll be with me in paradise. That's not what Jesus is doing. So why is that bit of text there? Well, remember this, context is king. As we understand God's word, it is so important that we put it in the context of what we're reading. There's an old saying that says, without a context, a text can be a pretext for anything. If you take something out of context, you can make it mean virtually anything you want. But God doesn't make it mean that. We misinterpret it by taking it out of context. So let's put it in context. Look with me at verse 52. Interesting that this gets brought up as well. Verse 52, it says, For they did not understand about the loaves. It makes reference back to what just happened, doesn't it? All right. 
And it also says their hearts are hard. We're going to deal with that in a second. But it says they didn't understand about the loaves. And the text immediately prior to this was the feeding. So we have to ask ourselves, God feeding his people, God miraculously providing in the wilderness, God providing bread to feed people in a desolate place. Men and women in that day who had studied the word of God, who knew divine history, what picture comes to mind? Bread in the wilderness, who are we thinking about? Moses, I heard it, thank you. Moses, exactly. There's this issue of Moses, the exodus. Don't we hear echoes of divine history right here? And then we have to ask ourselves, as they're on the sea, we find God passing by. Jesus for he meant to pass by. We put it in the context of this picture of Moses that's been put before the people. Jesus being that full and perfect deliverer, feeding in the desolate places. And in a moment, God passing by. Does this not ring consistent? Moses said, let me see your glory. Upon the mountain, God says, no one can look upon my glory and live. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he protects him with his hand until in that moment he allows him to see his glory as he passes by. And what the disciples needed to see at that moment was the glory of God the Creator in the midst of the storm. The sovereignty of the one who created the wind and the waves, who set that sea in its place, who raised the mountains to its heights, who would be able to deliver. This is the Lord, the Lord of glory, who is passing by. This is Jehovah Jesus. And he says to them, it is I. The very same way that God told Moses, I am. Remember, remember the, the passage there out of 1 Peter 4. We read it just a, just a minute ago. 1 Peter chapter 4 where it, it speaks about Beloved, do not consider it surprised concerning fiery trials. It says, but do you protect, partake in Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. I have to think that Peter had this and so many, so many occasions in mind when he, he thought about in that moment we were terrified in the boat, but it was at the revealing of God's glory right there. God's glory right there in the presence as Jesus passed by. They didn't understand it fully. They thought he was a ghost. That seemed to make more sense to them in the moment than that it was their Savior. But then he says something amazing. Verse 51, it says that Jesus got into the boat. He could have stopped the waves and kept wide on walking and said, I'll meet you on the other side. But he got into the boat. A great picture of incarnation that our Savior could have saved from a distance but the eternal plan of God is that Jesus would get in the boat with us and know our trouble, know our tribulation, and deliver us in its midst. Now, it says they had hard hearts. Praise God, they were not hardened for eternity. They were not hardened and abandoned. They were softening. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in, within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And our Savior, as he got into the boat, says... They were utterly astonished. Thick-headed. But coming to understand. May God be with us as we go forth, not knowing what we face today in way of a storm. But our Savior is in the boat with us. His glory is here. Our Savior knows He cares and He delivers. Praise God. Pray with me. Lord, thank You for this, Your Word. And may we, Father, 
rejoice in it as we go forth in the power and the strength. Lord, I pray that we would be, Father, not as thick-headed as we were yesterday. Father, that we would come to know, embrace, and love you more and more. Thank you for this, your word, in Jesus' name. Amen.